walking through the book of Psalms, uh, starting in September, first Sunday in September, we're actually shifting to the Gospel of Luke for, for a while. But up to this point, we're studying the book of Psalms. We're hitting Psalm 14 this morning, seven verses. And I thought, if there's ever a moment I need to preach a ten-minute sermon, it's this morning. After everything else we have going on, let's just ask me, are you going to preach a ten-minute sermon? No, like a ten-hour sermon. But, of all mornings, this is the one that should be quick because it's seven verses. Seven verses. What, what, what could be in seven verses? Oh, a lot. As I dug into these seven verses this week, you know the image that came to mind? This one right here. This one right here. Rushing nesting dolls. That's what came to mind. This does not say anything about my American patriotism. I'm just thinking in terms of just peeling the layers. It's just when I thought I was done, I I opened up the next doll and there's another one. And it just kept going. So this could be a three-week series through Psalm 14. There's that much there. But we'll just do one. And I'm only going to grab at three layers. There are multiple. Three layers. Here they are. These are the three layers we're going to unpack this morning. There are references to the past. There's repetition for the present. And there's rejoicing in the future. You word geeks, you're welcome. There's your alliteration. There's references, repetition, and rejoicing. All of it there in Psalm 14. That's just the tip of the iceberg. But that's what we can do today. So we pick up Psalm 14. If you have your Bible with you, you can turn over Psalm 14. I'm in the NIV, the New uh, International Version. Psalm 14, we'll pick up with verse 1. Here it is, a Psalm of David. The fool. We're going to have to stop right there. We have to stop right there. The fool. It's very important because there's actually a Hebrew word here that really helps us unpack something. You see, the Hebrew word here for fool is here, right here. It's nebal. That's the word, nebal. That's the Hebrew word for fool. Now, you might say, well, why is that a big deal? Because there are other words for fool that are used much more often in the Old Testament. Here's a couple of them. Evel and kisel. These are two Hebrew words for fool. I just picked out two from the Proverbs there. In Proverbs 10, there's two places where both of those are used. But in Psalm 14.1, David uses Nabal. Why would he use Nabal? Well, that same word shows up in David's past. This is the first reference to the past. It's like a hyperlink. And by using that word, he's hyperlinking. He's referencing back to something in his life where he came in contact with a Nabal, a fool. And it had a deep impact on his life. Actually, in that moment when he came into contact with this Nabal, that guy's name that he came into contact with was Nabal. It actually was that very same word. And so in 1 Samuel 25, what we find is a story of David. He and his men, they're on the run from King Saul, and they're just moving from place to place to place. They're running for their lives. And they, at some point, hit the wilderness, and they know that there's a man who owns many, many sheep, and those sheep are being sheared, and he knows maybe we can get some help from that guy. That guy is Nabal. First Samuel 25, here's the request he makes. We'll read this out of the New Living Translation. That should be First Samuel 25. 
Here's what, here's what David says to him. Would you be kind to us since we have come at a time of celebration? Please share any provisions you might have on hand with us and with your friend, David. And you know what Nabal says? Here's how he replies. Next set of verses, verses 10 through 11. Who is this fellow David? Nabal sneered at the young men. Who does this son of Jesse think he is? If I should, uh, sorry, should I take my bread and my water and my meat that I've slaughtered for my shears and give it to a band of outlaws who come from who knows where? Nabal says, no help. I reject. We, we reject not only helping, we reject you. And they would have been known David is the anointed king of Israel, but he has not yet been enthroned because King Saul is still in conflict with David. This is a rejection of God himself, God's agent, God's anointed one. So David, as you can imagine, very angry about all this. And so he decides, well, we're going to, I'll get my men together, we're going, and we're going to kill Nabal, and we're going to kill everyone in his household. And that's what they do. They strap the swords, and they make their way to just slaughter Nabal and his household. This Nabal, this fool, needs to be killed. But as they are moving to his house, Nabal's wife, Abigail, runs out to David and stops David and his men. And here Abigail says to David. Here's what she says, verses 24 through 26. Please, listen to what I have to say. I know Nabal is what? A wicked and an ill-tempered man. Please don't pay any attention to him. He is a fool. There's the play on words. Just as his name suggests. But I, I never, never even saw the young men you sent. Now, my Lord, as surely as the Lord lives and you yourself live, since the Lord has kept you from murdering and taking vengeance into your own hands, let all your enemies and those who try to harm you be as cursed as Nabal. So David steps back. He doesn't go. He doesn't murder the household. And what happens is just a few days later, Nabal actually has a stroke. Just after a night of partying, has a stroke, and two weeks later, dies. So here David, with his men in the wilderness, facing a fool. It looks like this fool will consume everything and not give anything to David and his men. And what happens? God steps in through Abigail, and he saves David from this great violence. And God becomes David's refuge, and all is made well. Actually, salvation comes to David, because David doesn't murder the household. Salvation comes here through Abigail. And he knows that one day he's going to be set on a hill. He'll be enthroned as God's anointed one. But right now, in this moment, this fool who had ill will towards David has been dealt with by God, not by David's own hand. That's what the context, that's, now you can see, so here's this larger context. So when David references this Nabal, it's a hyperlink, a reference to the past. There's this greater meaning involved. So when David says the fool, ah, you can imagine all that he had in mind, particularly this moment when a man named Nabal, the fool, tried to come against him. So now let's read Psalm 14 in full and get this wider context now in play. Psalm 14, pick up again with verse 1. The fool, the Nabal, says in his heart, there is no God. 
They are corrupt. Their deeds are vile. There's no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. All have turned away. All have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Do all these evildoers know nothing? They devour my people as though eating bread. They never call on the Lord. But there they are, overwhelmed with dread. For God is present in the company of the righteous. You evildoers frustrate the plans of the poor, but the Lord is their refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores His people, let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. Short story, the fool, the Nabal, thinks they're the center of the universe and they're in control. They're number one. David faced that man Years ago, and he knows those people are still out there. So there's this wider context that the fool says there is no God. Now here's the thing about a fool. A fool never stays isolated. Fools always spread their bad infection. That's just the nature of it. Fools spread their foolishness. And David actually is making that very point here in Psalm 14. It's, it's in another reference to the past. There's another reference embedded right here in this psalm. When David uses the words here, uh, we'll pick up verse, verse 2 here. When David here writes, the Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there's any who understand, who's, any who seek God. Right there, he's embedded a reference to the past. Might we call it a hyperlink. He's hyperlinking not just to one thing, to three things where that same kind of language is used to say something about how corrupt not just one person, not one Nabal, but society has become. That phrase, that's a reference to these past events, is right here. It's this, it's this phrase, the Lord looks down from heaven. That right there is actually a hyperlink back to three other events. We see that same kind of language when we read about the flood. Right before the flood, God comes down to take a look. He sees, He observes what's happening on the earth. And, not just then, but there's this moment when, after the flood, human beings try to build a tower. It's called the Tower of Babel. They try to build a tower to heaven. They want to be God. And God comes down. And then, there's this, these two cities, Sodom and Gomorrah, very corrupt. And God comes down. Each of these is, is in the mind of David. It's a reference back. When David says the Lord comes down, he's not just making a point about one fool. He's now saying how corrupt the whole has come. That infection in Nabal has now spread to society. Take a look, just quickly, a tour through those three events. Just want you to see it. Genesis 6-5, the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart only evil all the time. It was really bad. Then at the Tower of Babel, we read in Genesis 11, 5, but uh, how, but the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. And then in Genesis 18, we read this. The Lord said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. Right there, 
right there, you can see these three references are tied into that one phrase in Psalm 14. David's making a point, not just about a fool, but about what happens when a fool's infection spreads in society. So I want to summarize it this way. Here it is. In Psalm 14, I think David is describing a world in which foolishness, the foolishness of Nabal has infected the earth, just as it did before the flood, as it did at the Tower of Babel, and as it did in Sodom and Gomorrah. But you know the thing... You know the thing about infections, they just don't stop usually with one person or one society. They often keep going. And this psalm was so important. It was speaking such a profound truth that the Apostle Paul actually picks it up and declares the very same thing David's declaring. You see, Paul saw in his day that same infection that had infected the heart, that had spread through society. Well, that same infection was still in play in Paul's day. Still in play in the Roman Empire. Actually, it's a human problem. And so, the Apostle Paul, seeing this deep truth in Psalm 14, picks up Psalm 14 and uses it in his large argument to say, every human being has fallen short of the glory of God. He starts it this way, Romans 3, 10 through 12. Look at what, how he does it. This is the Apostle Paul writing making this very large argument about the human problem that has spread throughout human history. He writes this, as it is written. So here he quotes, quoting from the Old Testament. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Psalm 14 is so important that when Paul makes his massive argument, this profound argument that humans, Christians have been picking up for centuries, when he gets to that point to make this inspired argument, he hyperlinks back to Psalm 14. So Psalm 14 is saying something not just about the fool who says there's no God. Psalm 14 is also declaring that fool's infection has spread. Actually, it's a human problem. Sin is your problem. And it's my problem. You are not a good person. Nor am I. I'm actually a rebel. Because I want it my way, how I want it, when I want it. That is all of our problems. Now some of us sound or look better than others when we do all that sinning. Some of us are just really nice people on the outside. But deep down, Paul knows what Psalm 14 knows. What the Bible declares way back in the Genesis account that what you got here is a human problem. And so in the midst of this, these references to the past are having something to say about this infection that has spread, not just through one person, but through everybody, which would be you and me here. So where do we go from there? That seems to be a bit dark. But in the midst of all this darkness, David actually weaves in a message of hope, and he does it through repetition. That's so cool. This is when my, my mind started getting blown. As I was, I was like, man, does, this, does, the, does the well end? And it doesn't. Not on Psalm 14. So, repetition. Remember, when something is repeated, it's important. So, when something's repeated a certain number of times, it gets, it's really important. So, for example, if something gets repeated seven times, that's really important. Because in the Bible, the number seven represents perfection. If you get something that's repeated seven times, it's like the perfect repetition. Now, if you tell your kid no seven times, it doesn't matter. Try 20, 25, 30. It doesn't matter. This does not work in real life. It works in the Bible. Okay? 
Seven, something repeated seven times, very significant. So in the midst of a very dark situation where not only does the fool, is the fool infected, but it's infected every human, this foolishness has infected every human, David weaves in this message of hope through repetition. And would you know he repeats it seven times? What's that thing that he repeats seven times? I want you to see it. Now, it's going to be small font. I've tried to make the color red. If you're online, so sorry. You're just going to have to believe me. Here it is. Do you see what's repeated seven times? God and Lord are repeated seven times. So in the midst of declaring darkness, David inserts, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, inserts God seven times. One scholar explains what that means this way. Oh, I love this. Here it is. The seven direct references to God or Lord in Psalm 14 create a sense of the fullness of the divine presence. So the psalm begins with an absence. There is no God. And ends with the comprehensive fullness of God's presence. So when you are in the midst of great darkness, David is weaving into this this dark scene a declaration that no matter how dark it gets, God is still sovereign, and He's active, and He's still right here. Isn't that so cool? It's right there, woven in seven times to say He is perfectly present, He is perfectly sovereign, and it doesn't matter how corrupt this gets, God is here, and God will deal with it. Man, all woven in. That's this repetition for the present. But just in case you thought that was it, that God here, present, sovereign, right now, that's not it. Because not only does He say something about the present dark moment, God sovereign and active, there's this one last layer, and that is rejoicing for the future. Verse 7, verse 7 gives us the glimpse here. He says this, Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion, and when the Lord restores His people, let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. David gets to this point in the psalm where he says, I know salvation's coming. It's coming out of Jerusalem. And what David didn't know was exactly how that would happen. He didn't know how that would happen. But we, post the cross and resurrection, we know exactly how that happened because salvation did come out of Jerusalem. You know who came into Jerusalem and brought salvation and from Jerusalem it launched into the world? Jesus. Here, verse 7 declares... That salvation is coming from Jerusalem. It is, an, it is right here, painted into the psalm, is a declaration Jesus is coming. And from Jerusalem, salvation will go into the world and there will be rejoicing. Now here's the thing I love. Remember what Paul did with Psalm 14? Paul used Psalm 14 to do exactly what David was doing in Psalm 14. Which is to make the argument that this bad infection has spread to every human. David doesn't leave you there. David, even unknown to himself, gets us to Jesus. He points us to salvation that will come out of Jerusalem. We know that's Jesus. Interestingly, Paul does the exact same thing. Paul doesn't leave us in Romans 3, verses 10 through 12, where we're in this very dark environment where no one does good. He doesn't leave us there. In the same way David doesn't leave us in verses 1 through 6, Paul doesn't leave you in verses 10 through 12 in chapter 3. Just as David gets us to Jesus, Paul's going to do the exact same thing. He tracks the same internal logic 
that's in Psalm 14, he tracks it in Romans 3 when he writes this great chapter of the Scriptures. Here's what David writes as he comes to the close of Romans 3. Guess who's going to sit at the center of this verse, or of this passage? Jesus is. Here it is. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of His blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate His righteousness because in His forbearance, He left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate His righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Your sin and my sin had to be dealt with. And so Christ came and bore the punishment of our sin. Our sin was laid on Him. We might say it was imputed to Him. And then what Paul argues here is actually then, His righteousness is then imputed to you. You are now righteous in the eyes of God. Not because somehow you became perfect all of a sudden internally and you never make any mistakes. It's because the righteousness of Christ is now given to you. And you are now justified, not by what you do, but by Christ. So if you want to know, do I, did I ever do enough? The answer will always be no. You never did enough to be saved, nor will you. But Christ did, and He gives His righteousness to you. Do you see how Psalm 14, and then you track that all the, Rome, all the way to Romans 3. This thing is all about Jesus. We might say that the righteousness of Christ counters and cures the bad infection of sin, the sin of that fool. We could go all the way back to the garden where that infection started. Christ comes in as the second Adam, and He brings a good infection. And He gives you that good infection, not because of anything you did, but because of His grace, and only by faith alone in Him. And that's such a cool, what a cool picture woven together in Psalm 14. It gets us to Christ. Those three layers get us there. Just for review, let's take a look at what we just did. There are references to the past in Romans 14, and they describe, those references to the, to the, to the past, describe how corrupt we are as individuals in a society. But then there's that repetition for the present, which tells us that God is sovereign and active. And then we know that last layer is rejoicing in the future, and that points us to salvation in Christ alone. This whole thing gets us to Jesus. All right, now here's some application. You ready? Hope you have your shoes on, because as I was writing it, my toes were hurting, particularly on this one. First application right here, our sin infects other people. So here's the thing. If you think that you can do things in secret and it doesn't hurt anyone else, you're a Nabal. You're a fool. Now, we usually don't do this explicitly. We usually don't go around saying, I know things that I do in secret don't hurt anyone else. No, we just act like it doesn't. So when you look at something on a computer screen you're not supposed to be looking at, you better believe that's going to affect how you treat your children in the home, your spouse, co-workers, all that. You can't, you can't keep an infection inside yourself. It will always spread. And you don't come to church for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks, months and months and months. Now, if you think I'm looking at you, I probably am. But don't, don't, I'm not really looking at any one person, except maybe Mark. I mean, that's maybe, maybe just one. 
I feel like you've gone too long without a reference. Yeah. Um, If you think that not being around other Christians doesn't affect you, well, then you're just a fool. Because you not showing up will eventually affect your house, and it will affect everyone in your house, and it'll affect anyone that has contact with you. If you think that watching TV shows that you really shouldn't be watching, from Netflix to Hulu to anything in between, if you think those bad shows won't ever hurt you, because you're above that and you're mature and you're an adult, and that little thing up at the top says TVMA, you're fine, you're mature. If you think that won't affect you, well, then you have another thing coming. All of it affects you, and it will transfer into your house. And you may not see that infection. You may not see the fruit of that infection for years to come. But at some point, it will rear its head. Our sin infects other people. Now listen, I'm just picking on some of these things. Some shows I know are TVMA for certain reasons. So don't come up to me and say, but there's this show. Listen, I'm not being a legalist about this. I'm trying to get across a point. That the stuff you think that is hidden never hurts anyone else. Well, that's just foolishness. It affects everyone around you. That's the nature of sin. But there's this second thing I want to bring then in the application. It's this. This is the positive side of the thing. Christ in us also infects others. It's what C.S. Lewis called the good infection. So when you read your Bible every day, okay, when you read the Bible every day and you think, well, that's not doing any good, you better believe it's doing good. It is going to spread a good infection in your home. When you come to church and you think, why didn't you get anything out of it? Did that even matter? Yes. Because the long-term play on that good infection will have benefits years from now. It'll have benefits on your house, on your family. It'll have benefits in the workplace. It'll have benefits for your children. When you, when you do just a good deed, when you do something just good in the house and no one ever knows about it, oh, a good infection will spread. Anytime you get Christ in front of you, it will spread a good infection. It will spread hope and joy. And it may not just like explode in your home like glitter and then everybody can see it, but you can guarantee that infection will spread and it will infect everyone else. So really the question is, is what are you spreading? What are you spreading? If COVID taught us anything, or nothing, it is things spread. But the most dangerous thing you and I are spreading is not a virus. Even if you had COVID came in, coughed on all of us, it would not be the most dangerous thing you ever did. The sin you carry in you, which can lead to eternal death, well, that's the thing most dangerous. And a mask might help. It might help stop some spread. But you see, COVID or flu, or take your pick. These are not the most dangerous things in the world. And nor are chemo to masks to antibiotics. They're not the best cure in the world either. It is Christ that will give you a good infection that will spread to everyone else. And that will have eternal rewards. So what I'm trying to get at is, really think on, really think on what you're spreading. Because here in Psalm 14, David's very clear. You're going to spread something. I happen to be the kind of person that God is making me to be that wants to spread a good infection. And man, I mess up. And man, as I came up with this application, I was thinking of all the different things I am spreading that are bad in my home. I want to be a person that's spreading a good infection. Okay, so here's one way to do it. Next step, here it is. 
man, I really thought I was going to do better. I mean, I was feeling good until I looked at my watch. Fact. Okay. Should just stick with my feelings. Um, if you feel like it's 9.30, none of you will be frustrated. Uh, I 10.30. Just feel like it's 10.30 and you'll be fine. Okay? And the teachers upstairs, they can feel like it's 10.30. It'll all be fine. Okay. Here it is. Next step. Intentionally and repetitively pick up the good infection of Christ. Okay? So it's like, like, what do you mean by that? Anything that gets your eyes and mind on Christ, do that. Like, I just... Bible reading, church attending, podcast listening, fellowship gathering. Just do something that's going to get Christ in front of you. Again, not a legalist here. Do something that gets Christ in your home, in your mind, in front of your eyes. And I guarantee you, when Christ, with Christ in you, you'll be spreading a good infection. That means you're going to be perfect. But man, there will be something different about you. And you will be a blessing to other people. So, do something. Pick up the good infection of Christ, whatever that looks like in your life. But it's concrete, it's something you do, and doing it every day might be a good practice. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. It is a treasure of wisdom and knowledge. It is inspired by your spirit, and we are trained by it. We come to Christ. This whole thing drives us to Christ. It is his righteousness that has infected us. We spread that through our lives, and through our words, through every part of us. Help us along the way. We sure need your help. Would you convict us of anywhere in our life where sin has become a very bad infection for the people in our lives? We need that conviction and we need help to change that. I don't know what that is for everyone in the room, but Holy Spirit, you can make a difference here. And then, as we pick up Christ, he is a good infection. May our homes, may our workplaces become more light than darkness more love and care and grace and patience. And we're going to need your help for all of this. Thank you for your word. Thank you for doing what we cannot do. And all of it we pray it under the name and the banner and the authority of Christ Jesus. And together we say, Amen.